You know, we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, Marshall, uh, Jim Marshall at the end, but uh, he is remembered for doing this, running the wrong way. And in our lives, sometimes we probably ask ourselves the question, am I going the right direction? And I'm sure that God looks down on his people sometimes and says, what are you doing? So this morning we're going to go through some scriptures that are in where those involved acted contrary to what they said they were going to do or what was expected of them. We're going to explore the, this morning the question of what are you doing? We're going to look at a couple of parables in the 15th chapter of Luke and we're going to look at those parables from a, from a perspective of God's love, grace, mercy, and rejoicing. And we're also going to look at people's actions in a few verses in the 32nd chapter of Exodus as God grants unconditional grace when we really don't deserve it. You know, Paul says uh, in Romans, I think it's chapter 7, where Paul goes through verses that really make no sense, uh, regardless of how many times you read them. And I'm not sure they made any sense to Paul when he said, I don't know why I do what I do. I know what I do I shouldn't be doing, but I'm doing it anyway. We all struggle with, with that question from time to time. And a lot of times it's because we become self-absorbed. It's all about me. There was a little boy that climbed into a chair and started eating cookies off the kitchen counter. His mom had set the cookies there to warm, and she had told him, don't eat the cookies. So he's up there, he's eating the cookies, and his mom surprised him, and she yelled, what are you doing? I told you not to eat the cookies. The little boy responded with a mouthful of cookies. I got up here on this chair, and my teeth got caught in the cookies. <laughs> Today, we're probably going to recall some bad decision or poor choices that we have made when we knew better. But to start off with, I want to look back at uh, a verse that we went over uh, Sunday. Uh, Resurrection Sunday. A simple request Jesus made to his disciples. He just asked them to stay awake and watch. So if you get your Bibles and turn to the 26th chapter of Matthew, I'll be reading the story that begins in the 40th verse. And it's just a couple of verses. It's a really, really easy request that Jesus made during the time where he was troubled, during the time where he knew he was about to be sacrificed for all our sins. He asked them to, to stay and watch. And when he returns back, he says, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men, men not keep watch for me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Simple request. But how often have our eyelids become heavy? Maybe it was because what was being said wasn't important to us. Or maybe it was because what was being said we'd heard before. Or even better yet, maybe it was something that was being said that we already knew. Jesus is warning them about the kinds of temptations they would soon face. The way to 
overcome temptation is to keep watch and pray. Watching means looking at the possibilities of temptation, the sensitivity to those little subtle hints that come about, and being spiritually equipped to fight off those temptations. You see, temptation strikes when we are most vulnerable, usually when things are going well for us, or in our opinion, they're going well, or we're getting our way or getting what we want, when in reality we should in all times focus on God and rely on his strength and not our own. Grab your Bibles, turn to the 15th chapter of Luke. There are several parables in the 15th chapter. We're going to look at a couple of them this morning. One you're very, very familiar with, and I know we've preached on before, and that's the prodigal son. We're going to look at the other two this morning. And we're going to look at them from a perspective of being lost. And what Jesus says about being lost But then what we are going to see is how we react when we are lost and don't really realize we're lost sometimes. So beginning of the 15th chapter, the first seven verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Sometimes these parables just doesn't, they don't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, who would leave 99 sheep to go look for one? When you come back, how many sheep do you think you're going to find where you left those 99? You know how easy it is once one sheep starts meandering off someplace and here everybody else goes. And so you come back and maybe you have no sheep left or maybe you have half of those sheep left. And when you told the story of losing 99 of your sheep or half your sheep, somebody's going to say, what are you thinking? What were you doing? Here's something else to think think about, and that's if this man during Jesus' time had 100 sheep and one ran off, first of all, he is really blessed that he's got 100 sheep. And one runs off. In this day and age, if that happened to someone that was wealthy and they lost one thing, you know what? They'd figure out how to make it a tax write-off. You see, most farmers of that day had 10 or fewer sheep. And so it's pretty absurd that someone would go looking for one sheep. But the most important thing here is to understand when that sheep is found... There's a party. There's rejoicing that goes on. You see, kingdom math is, not, is very, very different from earthly math. Kingdom math tells us that one, is lost, one lost sheep is worth walking miles in the desert in the heat 
It's worth spending hours looking in a dangerous wilderness. It's worth risking 99 others. Give one a chance to have new life. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My answers are not always your answers. Do you know in this situation, the Pharisees were asking Jesus the question that I asked this morning. What are you doing? You see, sheep herders were not considered clean people in the Old Testament. He's visiting and eating with sinners, and they just don't get it. You see, Jesus was showing showing such a deep love and grace for those that were in need. A good shepherd knows his sheep, and they, they know his voice, and they obey his voice, and so they stay in that sheepfold. God loves, God's love for everyone is so great that he seeks each one of us, and he rejoices when one repents and is reunited with his kingdom. So still in the 15th chapter of Luke, going down to the 8th verse, we pick up with this story. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, Palestine... Palestinian women would receive 10 silver coins when they were married. And it was very, very precious to them and had very much sentimental value along with actual value. And to lose one would be extremely depressing. In fact, if you lost one, you should feel shame that you lost such a precious gift. But there's no shame when one who is lost is found. Just as the woman would rejoice in finding the lost coin, so angels rejoice over a sinner that repents. As I said before, everyone is precious to God. This is the nature of God. He does not sit idly and watch his children meander off. But let's be honest. We've got to confess that sometimes we lack a desire to search for something that is lost. It may be a lack of confidence, it may be a lack of faith, it may be pride, it may be self-centeredness, or we just may be plain lazy. But rarely, when something is lost, is there lack of an opportunity to find it. Usually we choose not to act, and we don't look for it. We fail to place our trust in God that what is lost can be found. Let's just say that you're at your desk and you're shuffling through papers. And these papers originally were paper clipped and you've taken them all out and you've moved them around and you put them in a different order. And now you're going to paper clip them together. But you can't find the paper clip. How hard are you going to look for that paper clip? Especially if there's a bowl of paper clips right there in front of you. Now you're just going to reach and grab that other paper clip and you don't care whether you ever find that paper clip or not. Or if you're going through a fast food restaurant place and you pull up to the window and what the cost is $8.03 and you have eight ones and three pennies as you pull up and you go to give your money and one penny falls off inside your car there on the floor. 
Are you going to pull up and get out of the car and look for that penny and get it and then back up and give it to them? No. Are you going to dig down in your floorboard and look for that penny while everybody's behind you? No, you're probably going to grab another dollar and now you've got a handful of change when it's over with. While these examples may not be comparable to the silver coin, the same is true if you are lost. God will search and pursue you until he finds you. These parables, these two parables, are designed specifically to tell us what God is like and what his kingdom is like. We need to develop a relationship of obedience in a relationship that is very, very deep so that we can understand the rejoicing that God has and the importance of those that are lost. The the importance of being obedient to God. So now if you grab your Bibles and turn to the 32nd chapter of Exodus. As you're looking for that, I want to give you a little intro into this part that we're going to read. God's people, uh, Moses has gone to the mountaintop, and God's people have figured he's not coming back. He's been gone for a long time, so what are we going to do? Well, they decide they need a new God. They're impatient. They're frustrated. So they get earrings, they get all the gold that they can muster together, and Aaron makes a golden calf. And then he made an altar so they, they could have a festival the next day. So we pick up in the seventh verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. Well, immediately you see that God has turned these people over to Moses. They are no longer his people. They belong to Moses. These are your people and you've done this and they're corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you, brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. They leave, now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. How mad is God? They have been left alone while Moses has had this intimate moment or moments with God. And they've strayed. They've meandered off. Picking up again, we read, but Moses sought favor of the Lord God. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? Uh, Moses has given them back to him. Whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was the evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be an inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. 
Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God, the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, this is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing, what I, what I hear. When Moses approached the cap, camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he, he took the calf that they had made, and he burned it in fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it in the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. How mad was Moses? What did he say to Aaron? Well, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Actually, his words were, what did these people do to you? You know, and there's a place for righteous anger. However angry Moses was, I want you to know God was more angry. You see, idolatry is the track in which the train of demons goes down. You know, in some businesses, you have transactions or contracts where there's a clause in there that has everything to be exclusive with you and whomever you entered into this contract with. These clauses simply mean that in considering this agreement, there can be no competing relationships, no competing loyalties, and no competing contractual obligations. That's what God wants. What God called for, for in his first commandment is this exclusiveness as to who your God is and who you will follow in your life. We have a tendency to listen to other people and their opinions, and we quit listening to God. You know, teenagers have an uncanny knack for caring more about the opinion of their peers than they do of their parents. I know you parents find that hard to believe. There are famous, the teenagers are famous for referring to what Bob or Bill or Brenda or Betty is thinks about something as though it's relevant. There are a couple of problems with this mentality. Those peers don't provide the roof over that teenager's head or the clothes or the food that they have. So they shouldn't carry as much weight with their opinions as those of their parents. God shares the same sentiment. He does not want his children to bring in thoughts of other gods to his relationship with you. Every time something shows up in culture that distracts people from God, it encroaches on God's 100% monopoly he wants in your life. We learn that through experience, if we've experienced God. Someone said, you know, wisdom comes from experience, but I believe true wisdom comes from the experience of, that you gain through making bad decisions and then walking in the grace of God afterwards. When you were young, did your mom ever tell you, don't touch that skillet, it's hot? And yet you wonder how hot is hot. And so you're curious, and you touch it. And you burn your finger, you burn your hand, and you start crying, and your mom, if you're young, comes over to you and hugs you and 
nurtures you and kisses your fingers and gets aloe vera, puts on your hands. It's going to be okay, baby. It's going to be all right. Now, if you're an older, you're a teenager, and they say, don't touch that skillet, and you touch it, what do they say? What are you doing? Did I tell you not to touch that skillet? What are you thinking? We make bad decisions. Why do we do these things? We don't know sometimes. Especially if you've got a teenage boy and you ask him why he did something, your response is going to be this. I don't know. Doesn't get any better than that with a teenage boy. They, and they, they don't, folks. They really don't know. Some people will ask, well, why are we here? And then you know you've had some people, and this may be qualified if you have this response to be vice president of the United States. We are here because we're not somewhere else. If you ask, what is your purpose? God's got an answer for you, and it's in that Bible. It's in his word. Your purpose is to serve the one that has given you life and, to, and desires to have an experience with you so that you understand his unending, unfailing, and ever-present love. So we must trust him. And sometimes we're a skeptic people, and we're not sure who we're supposed to trust, and we're, we're leery of so many folks, but we should always trust God. We must humbly trust God and then stand obediently on his promises. And sometimes when we're corrected, and someone speaks truth into our lives, we need to accept that. We need to learn from that. Reverend Billy Graham told a story early in his ministry where he had arrived in a small town where he was to preach a sermon. He wanted to mail a letter first, so he asked a young man where the post office was. After the boy had told him where it was, Dr. Graham thanked him and said, if you come to church this evening, you'll hear me tell everyone how to get to heaven. And the boy responded, I don't think I'll be there. You don't even know where the post office is. We must trust God. Even when things don't make sense to us, even when things we can't wrap our head around how this is going to work out, know that God is in control. Who would have thought walking around the walls as Joshua did, blowing trumpets, was going to bring that wall down? But they were obedient. They trusted God. When you teach your kids how to ride a bike, you're running behind them, holding on to the back of that. They have their training wheels, but they want those training wheels off after a while. And so they're still wobbly, and you grab the back, the seat of that bike, and you'll run behind them, and that wheel is just wobbling, and suddenly they begin to get control of it, and you let go. And they're riding on their own. And you're so proud of them that they're halfway down a block. You yell, you can do it. And then they realize you're not holding on to the bike anymore. And they start to wobble and they fall off the bike, kind of like Peter walking on water. They get distracted. Or when your child has the floaties on and you want them to jump in the water and they're really fearful of the water and you say, I'll catch you. And they jump and you catch them the first time. Suddenly riding that bike and jumping into water, what do they realize? I can ride the bike. I can swim. I really don't need you anymore. And so often we do that with God. Pride sets in. And we believe we can do so many things without him. 
we tell God, hey, thanks for getting this started, but I got it from here. The reality is we need him just as much in the beginning as we need him in the end. From the beginning to the end, we need God. You see, there are souls in this world that do not know that they're even lost. They've not found or even heard about Christ, and they have not felt the love of other people. They have learned this is a dog-eat-dog world, and all that matters is number one. Their feelings have become their truth. Truth is a person, folks. That's not a concept. Jesus said, I am the truth. That means that you can never know the truth of your circumstances unless you have a relationship with Jesus to be able to hear him in your circumstances. We are here because he has chased after us. And it's pleasing when he catches us. At one time, we were all lost sheep. But know the promise that God himself said in Ezekiel 34, 11, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look for them. So where are you right now? What direction are you going? How is your relationship with God? The best way to tell if you're prepared for a greater revelation of God is to see how faithful you are with what he has blessed you with to this point. If you've been faithful with little, he will give you more. He's ready to entrust you with even more. When the Lord speaks to you and moves in your life, it will require an adjustment in your life. When God answers your prayers and reveals his will to you, it will immediately require you to reorient your life to his will. What an enormous task we have. Trying to, in our own mind, think what God is doing rather than just being obedient and following God. You remember the story of John and James in the Samaritan village when Jesus was not welcome, they said, you want us to bring fire down on this village? Let's just destroy this village. They wanted to destroy the entire village, yet God wanted to bring salvation to that village. And when salvation came to that village, can you imagine what went through James and John's head at that time? So if you're struggling to believe that God can take care of your need, it's because you probably haven't experienced God in his fullness yet. You need to deepen your relationship with him and experience the promises that he has. You see, he wants all of you, not just part of you. In the Bible, God is never satisfied with a partial commitment. When his people sought to follow him, yet try to hold on to other gods of their culture, he insisted on a complete commitment and dependence on him as being the one and the only true God. In the movie, Lily of the Fields, there was a businessman in town who was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. However, one day the town was coming together and they began to build a new chapel. He got involved. Working on the chapel, he was helping them. And so he was asked, I thought you were an atheist. And he replied, I am. Then he was questioned, I don't understand. You're helping build a house of God. His response was, yes, I am. 
He was questioned, why would you do that if you're an atheist? His response, just in case. That is what we do. We keep other gods and we keep other priorities in our back pocket just in case God doesn't do what we think he should be doing. We keep idols tucked away. We hang on to certain people, places, and things just to cover our back if God doesn't say what he's going to do. If God fails us, God will never fail you. Look at Exodus 20, uh, 32 that we just read. God wasn't failing them. They became impatient. They decided that yeah, we got to do something different. And they had God's anger. You see, what we need today is a generation of believers who have the guts to believe that following God brings abundant joy even in the times of trials and tribulation. We don't have to seek our own agenda to be satisfied. God has a perfect plan for us. We need to listen and follow his ways for his glory. We need to be together in one body for his kingdom. We should seek the lost sheep and return them to his kingdom. We need to grow his church. A nine-year-old wrote a note to his pastor. and said, Dear Pastor, I think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland. So often we think we can do things without God. There's a story of a kite that was flying and began to talk to itself. The kite said to itself, if I could get rid of of this string, I I could go higher. It's it's holding me back. I, I could go as high as I wanted to. Nothing could hold me back. I'm limited by this string that I'm attached to. And one day the kite got its wish. The string broke. And the kite came crashing down. You see... The string that kept the kite from soaring was the same string that kept him from crashing. Cutting the string did not make him freer. We will always head toward disaster if we cut our dependency that we have on God. God wants us to trust him and to let him hold the string. Staying connected keeps us from falling. We have all denied Jesus at some time, just as Peter did. We've all ran from his calling, just as Jonah did. We have all made excuses, just as Moses did. We've all fallen short of God's desire for us at some point in time. Now you can live out what all those that we read about by asking for forgiveness and not giving in to temptation, by focusing on the one that created us and has given us the opportunity to spend eternity with him, staying focused on God. You know, Jim Marshall ended up in the Hall of Fame, not because of one moment in time, because he corrected himself. Later in that game, he recovered another fumble. He laid on it this time. He didn't get up and run, so it turned out to be really good. Don't put a period where God has put a comma a colon or a semicolon in your life. Lorena, I'm going to close with prayer. And I want to invite each of us to rededicate your lives to Christ. All of us have gone astray or missed the mark in some way. We've all heard the words, what are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you? 
Why have you forsaken me? At some point in our lives, we've disappointed God. We've all said things that we're not proud of, hurt those that we love, and at times we may ourselves seem lost. We need to know that God is looking for you, just as he did Adam and Eve. He's waiting for you to bring you home, to be rejoiced just as the joy that the father of the prodigal son had when he came home. He's reaching out to you, desiring for you to know him better, for you to experience his love, grace, and mercy. Or maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you didn't understand the limitless love that God has for you and the desire to be in a relationship with you, whatever the case is. 